You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, let me know. Bubbles there. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so sick? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the Call me Mr. Boy's best friend. You have no style. You Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Well, This week was pretty awesome. If you follow the podcast on social media, you may already know to what I'm referring. I and one of my best friends managed to procure tickets to Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood book launch this week. Perks of Living in Los Angeles is definitely getting to do stuff like this. I've been a pretty big fan of Quentin's since I'd first seen Reservoir Dogs when I was younger. I don't remember how old I was when I saw it, but based on my early exposure to a lot of inappropriate content, I'm going to go ahead and go out on a limb and say that was probably too young when I saw that movie as well. For the event, Quentin gave a two-hour talk for a podcast, which was really cool because he comes off as basically like the baby of IMDb and an art house theater, and that baby then grows up to have the confidence of a straight upper-class white male. Has he earned the right to that level of confidence? Absolutely. He may be one of the only people on the planet who does. But it's still funny to watch someone be like that like confident not confident with themselves but just like they he knows he's good at what he does as he should anyway he's awesome after the event he signed books for everyone that attended so i got to meet quentin tarantino for like one whole minute and it was so cool i'm recording this four days later and i'm still pretty stoked about it not gonna lie and this week was uh let's just say a lot happened For those not located in Los Angeles or don't know a bunch about Quentin Tarantino's business choices, he owns a theater in Hollywood called The New Beverly. It's where the book event occurred and where I spent a good part of my Friday night until I broke my phone. Didn't break my phone. My phone decided to break itself. So for this week on Two Sentence Movie Reviews of Movies I Saw in a Movie Theater, we've got just two, supposed to be three, but I couldn't stay for the whole double feature, and none of these films are anywhere near recent releases. This week we've got The Birdcage and Two Lane Blacktop. Aforementioned friend and I went to see The Birdcage at an AMC last Sunday for the 25th anniversary of the film's release. The Birdcage is one of my favorite movies, one I try not to watch more than once a year though, so enough time will pass where I forget a thing or two so the movie is like new again. The Birdcage is one of the best comedies ever made and if you've never seen it, go watch it after you finish listening to this podcast of course. The second, Tulane Blacktop, is a road trip movie about two brothers and their unattractive but very fast car and the shenanigans they get into on the road. This film, for a multitude of reasons, would never get made today and is more about just being one with the movie than trying to critique it in any real way. I will say I enjoyed it, but definitely want to see it again because it's pretty unique, especially compared to what I normally watch. But overall, did I enjoy watching it? Yes, I did. Now that I've droned on forever, let's get into today's topic. Here we go. New month, new theme. For the last 11 months, we've learned all about the sweet and sour surrounding the film industry. This month, it's all sour. We're going to hear four examples of pairs of individuals who weren't so fond of each other for one reason or another. 
This week is probably the most classic Hollywood feud of them all. Betty Davis and Joan Crawford. Now, you may have seen Ryan Murphy's feud series, but as Ryan Murphy is one to do, the show took more than a few liberties. Today, you'll learn about what really happened. So today, we'll talk a little bit about their early lives and careers leading up to the beginning of their feud, the production of the only film they made together, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, and a little bit of what happened after in regards to their feud. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. Enigmas and inconsistencies surrounding the life of Joan Crawford begin at, well, the beginning. Joan Crawford was born on March 23rd of either 1904, 1905, 1906, 1907, or 1908. The date on her tombstone, of course, says 1908, but her daughter Christina later claimed in a memoir that this was not accurate and that Crawford was actually born in 1904. What we do know is that Joan was born Lucille Faye LeSueur in San Antonio, Texas, the third child of construction laborer Thomas and mother Anna. Thomas would abandon the family when Lucille was just 10 months old. Anna would remarry, and the family eventually settled in Lawton, Oklahoma. There, the young Lucille fell in love with vaudeville as her stepfather ran the local theater. In her early years, Lucille did not know that her stepfather was not her biological father until her older brother and only surviving sibling told her that he in fact was not, because that's what older siblings are for. Her stepfather also allegedly abused her until Billy, as Lucille preferred to be called, was sent to a Catholic boarding school. Initially, Lucille had aspirations to be a dancer, but one day when trying to escape from piano lessons, she jumped out of a window and cut her foot open on a broken milk bottle. The injury required three subsequent surgeries to fix, and Lucille was out of school and dance class for a year and a half. In 1917, Lucille's stepfather was accused, though acquitted, of embezzlement. Even though he was acquitted, his name was blacklisted in town. Soon after, Lucille's mother and stepfather separated, but Lucille managed to remain at her school as a work student, where she spent far more time working, primarily cooking and cleaning, than studying. She later attended another fancy school in a similar fashion. In 1922, she applied for college, stating her birth year as 1906, but only attended for a few months before dropping out. Lucille soon began dancing in the choruses of traveling reviews and was eventually spotted performing in Detroit by producer Jacob Schubert. Schubert put her in the chorus line for his 1924 show Innocent Eyes at the Winter Garden Theater on Broadway in New York City. Lucille eventually approached the theater's publicist in order to get what she wanted. He managed to procure her a screen test for MGM in Hollywood for producer Harry Rapf. On Christmas Eve 1924, Lucille was offered $75 a week, about $1,200 today, to be on the MGM talent roster. She began her film career as Lucille LeSueur, appearing in a handful of silent films, her first of which was serving as MGM's top starlet at the time, Norma Shearer's Body Double. MGM was happy with Lucille's talent, but not so much with her name. They said it sounded fake. Also... Le Sewer kind of sounds like the sewer, which isn't an image you want to drum up when trying to sell an image of glamorous Hollywood actress. Because this was how things were done in 1920s Hollywood, head of MGM publicity Pete Smith 
organized a contest called Name That Star in Movie Weekly to allow readers to select Lucille's new stage name. That's right. She didn't even get to choose her own name. The initial choice was Joan Arden, but another actress already existed by that name, so the alternative surname, Crawford, became the choice. Lucille LeSueur was no more. Long live Joan Crawford. In Lowell, Massachusetts, on April 5, 1908, Ruth Elizabeth Davis entered the world, the daughter of Harlow, a law student and later patent attorney, and Ruth. Ruth Jr. was called Betty from a young age. Betty had kind of similar events to Joan occur in her childhood. Her parents separated for three years when Betty was just seven. Betty attended for a short time a Spartan boarding school. In the fall of 1921, Ruth Sr. moved to New York City using her children's tuition money to enroll in photography school. She then worked as a portrait photographer. Betty had fallen in love with acting at an early age, and this proximity to New York and New York theater only amplified that. After seeing a performance of Henrik Ibsen's The Wild Duck, starring fellow 18-year-old Peg Entwistle, she decided to give acting a shot herself. Betty soon began auditioning to get into a theater company, eventually landing at George Cooker's Stock Theater Company in Rochester, New York. Cooker wasn't super impressed with her, but he gave Betty her first paid acting assignment, a one-week stint playing the part of a chorus girl in the play Broadway. At 21, Betty was cast to play Hedvig in The Wild Duck, the same role she'd seen Peg Entwistle play three years prior. After performing in Philadelphia, Washington, and Boston, she made her proper Broadway debut in 1929 in Broken Dishes and followed it with Solid South. Eventually, Hollywood came knocking for Betty as well, and she and her mother Ruth moved to Hollywood in 1930 so Betty could screen test for Universal Pictures. 1930 was a time of great transition in the film industry as sound pictures had become the standard just two, three years prior. This meant that a lot of the silent actors, whom were hired because of their faces and their general looks, found themselves out of work when their voices sounded weird or if they couldn't hide an accent, hires up deemed off-putting. This led to a tidal wave of new talent being welcomed into Hollywood, many of them theater-trained actors, as they were the only acting professionals whom had extensive vocal training. Looks were still important, mind you, but they could take a slight backseat over an actor with a good voice. Betty's first screen test for Universal did not go well. In fact, it was a disaster from the moment she stepped off the train. A rep from the studio was supposed to meet her and her mother at the station, but left because he saw nobody who, quote, looked like an actress. Betty failed her first screen test, but was used in several screen tests for other actors. The job? Lying on a couch while 15 strange men laid on top of her and kissed her. The very modest at the time, Betty, was mortified. A second test was arranged for her for the 1931 film A House Divided. It was a last-minute deal, and Betty was hastily dressed in an ill-fitting costume with a low neckline. She was rebuffed by the film's director, who loudly commented to the assembled crew, quote, what do you think of these dames who show their chests and think they can get jobs? Which is just a super polite and not at all awful thing to say to anyone at any time, really. A cinematographer was ultimately responsible for Betty's first on-screen role. Carl Lemley, the head of Universal at this time, had wanted to fire her. But Carl Freund told Lemley that he thought Betty had lovely eyes and would be great in upcoming film Bad Sister. This would be Betty's film debut. Betty worked for Universal for 18 months and made six films with them, but was ultimately let go after all six of those films bombed. 
She was preparing to return to New York when actor George Arliss chose her to be the female lead in the Warner Brothers film The Man Who Played God, which released in 1932. Betty would credit George as the man who provided her with her first break in Hollywood. After the film, Warner Bros. signed her to a five-year contract, and Betty would remain with the studio for the next 18 years. Oh. <laughs> Have you seen it? Seen what? <laughs> yes. Oh, you don't mean 166? Mm-hmm. That fat, bulbous neighbor of mine, Mr. Pricing. Oh, not you. Oh, no, no. Uh-uh. Work. Does he sing? <laughs> I hope not. Were you playing something? Yes, the typewriter. Oh, you're a little stenographer. Yes, I'm a little stenographer. <laughs> That's fascinating. I don't suppose you'd uh, take some dictation from me sometime, would you? Well, uh, how about some tea, then? Tea would spoil my dinner. I only have one meal a day, and I'd rather hate to spoil it. Joan Crawford's number one fan in those early days was Joan Crawford. When she didn't like the parts MGM was doling out, she campaigned for herself to the public. As MGM screenwriter Frederica Segor Moss would recall, quote, No one decided to make Joan Crawford a star. Joan Crawford became a star because Joan Crawford decided to become a star. Joan had begun attending dances in the afternoons and evenings at hotels around Hollywood and at dance venues on the beach piers, where she often won competitions. Anything to get her name out there. And despite actively competing with Norma Shearer, who was married to Irving Thalberg, the head of production at MGM, she finally landed a job that showcased her talents with 1925's Sally, Irene, and Mary. Within a few years, Joan was playing the romantic lead to all of MGM's biggest male stars. Joan's work continued to raise in profile, eventually landing her flapper girl status in the late 1920s. She married her first husband, Douglas Fairbanks Jr. in 1929 in New York, against the wishes of Jr.'s father and his stepmother, Mary Pickford, whom were both the, like, uppity-up of Hollywood royalty at the time. Like, you know, Brad and Jen or Brad and Angelina before both of those crashed and burned. Though Pickford and Fairbanks did crash and burn too, so I guess it's apropos. While attitudes would cool between Joan and her father-in-law, she and Pickford never got along. Joan was one of a small pool of actresses to breeze past the transition from silent film star to the talkies, but she had to work real hard at it. She was a Texas girl, and that meant she had a Southern accent, which was not an accent the movie moguls wanted their movie stars to have. Joan spent hours reading aloud on her own, attempting to rid herself of her afflicting accent. Lucky for her, MGM was one of the last studios to switch over to sound, so she had some time. Joan made a successful transition to the talkies with her first starring role in the all-talking feature-length film, Untamed. Her biggest role and her most iconic from the early days of her career would follow in 1932 with Grand Hotel, MGM's first star-studded picture of the talkies era. The film would ultimately win Best Picture at the Academy Awards that year. Now, in these early days, thanks ultimately to the star system, which isn't a thing you can say too often when referring to actors, there wasn't a ton of rivalry between actresses at different studios. The feuds were more or less contained to the backlots, which meant that people could keep them a little more hush-hush than they might have been otherwise. But this didn't stop the feud between an MGM actress and a Warner Brothers one from beginning a feud a year after the release of Grand Hotel. 
Joan Crawford was a bona fide movie star before Betty Davis's feet ever touched Southern California soil. But in 1933, Betty had reached that rare, pivotal moment in her career with the comedy Ex-Lady, which would be the first to feature her name above the title. A huge deal for any young actress. Warner Brothers had planned on an elaborate publicity campaign, essentially Betty's one-woman debutante ball. She had arrived, and she was a Hollywood juggernaut. Everything was ready to go, until Joan Crawford announced that she was divorcing Douglas Fairbanks Jr. on the very same day. The article in the New York Times that was supposed to heavily feature Betty and the film was reduced to a small paragraph in the review section. Multiple pages, however, were devoted to Jones News, and other papers followed suit. X-Lady was dropped from theaters after a week, thanks to poor ticket sales. According to Hollywood legend, a feud was born. And that's the town we're living in for the rest of this episode. I'm sure I'll cover the careers of these amazing ladies and their lives in spite of the feud down the line because both are heavy hitters in the cinematic realm, but that is not what this month is about. Two years after Joan divorced Fairbanks Jr., she remarried to someone who just so happened to be the man that Betty was in love with. In 1935, Betty was starring in the drama Dangerous and fell hard for her co-star, Franchot Tone. I fell in love with Franchot, professionally and privately, she said. Everything about him reflected his elegance from his name to his manners. Too bad Joan had gotten to him first. The couple announced their engagement whilst Tony was still filming Dangerous with Betty. Quote, They met each day for lunch, Betty would recall in 1987. He would return to the set, his face covered in lipstick. He was honored this great star was in love with him. I was jealous, of course. Joan claimed that Tony, quote, Thought Betty was a good actress, but he never thought of her as a woman. Betty would insist, however, that Joan was responsible for her and Tony's love never being. Not all was lost, as Betty won her first Oscar for this role, but somehow Joan Crawford managed to show her up once again. Another thing we'll definitely cover down the line is the saga of Betty Davis and Jack Warner. Jack was Betty's boss, and the two were constantly at ends with each other over the work Betty thought she should be doing, which escalated as the years progressed. At the Oscar ceremony when Betty went for Dangerous, she didn't imagine she would win and wore a plain navy dress, which was an old costume, to the ceremony to slight Jack Warner, whom forced her to attend to protest the formation of the Screen Actors Guild. When her name was read out, legend has it that Tony got up and embraced her, while his now wife, Joan, refused to budge and kept her back to Davis. After Tony called her out for being rude, Joan supposedly turned to Betty and said with a sneer, Dear Betty, what a lovely frock. I've enjoyed this afternoon, going barefoot and sleeping in the sun, playing a sort of a, a naiad in general. What do you mean? What's a naiad? Some sort of a wood nymph. I'm not, uh, not very much up on my sprites. <laughs> well, I must say a naiad becomes you better than a meanad. Fancy. Well, what's a meanad? They were mythical women, famous for their beauty and charm, who attended the Dionysian revels. They were always so carried away by the wild madness that they ended up by dancing hysterically over the edge of a cliff to destruction. Sorry, but I'm, I'm too tired to be hysterical in my... My feet are much too sore from going barefoot to stand the job dancing over the cliff. By the way, I, um, I got the sermon. 
there's one little piggy that's going to market in a shocking state of nudity. By 1938, Joan had been at MGM for nearly 14 years. In actress years, that's a lifetime and a half. Her career had had its ups and downs, sure, everybody's does, but an article was about to be released that altered the course of her career. Joan, along with several others, including Greta Garbo, Norma Shearer, John Barrymore, Catherine Hepburn, and Fred Astaire, were all dubbed box office poison in an open letter in the Independent Film Journal. The list was submitted by Harry Brandt, president of the Independent Theater Owners Association of America. Brandt stated that while these stars had unquestioned dramatic abilities, their high salaries did not reflect in their ticket sales, thus hurting the movie exhibitors involved. Joan struggled through this for several years following this article, and Joan and MGM ultimately decided to part ways in 1943 after 18 years. She was given $100,000 in lieu of MGM running out her contract. Two days later, Joan signed on to Warner Brothers for $500,000. She requested the dressing room next to Betty's. Joan attempted a truce, sending her new co-worker flowers and gifts. All were returned, though. In the hallways, the two would make snide remarks about each other's appearance, love lives, upbringing despite them being pretty similar, careers, awards, and even each other's children. Nothing was off limits. Betty was still top dog at Warner in those days, meaning Joan got Betty's leftovers. This included Mildred Pierce, which Betty had turned down. Joan agreed to play the role, leading to her first Academy Award. Joan feigned sick the evening of the ceremony, not wanting to be in the room if she lost. She famously accepted her golden night in bed, surrounded by photographers, mind you. Two years later, Joan would take another lead role, originally intended for Betty, in the crime drama Possessed, and was nominated for an Oscar. In 1950, execs at Warner Brothers desperately wanted to get Betty and Joan on screen together. Betty adamantly refused. There were also rumors that Joan, who was in later years suspected of being bisexual, which, you know, not a big deal now, but real big deal back then, had feelings for Betty. And this whole feud was some kind of misguided playground. I hit you because I love you. But none of that can be definitively proven. Betty wouldn't work with Joan, but she would play her, literally. The 1952 film The Star was written by Crawford's longtime friend Catherine Albert, supposedly as retaliation after the two had a falling out. Betty was cast in the lead role of a washed-up actress clinging desperately to her fading star power, a thinly-veiled, deeply unflattering depiction of Joan. Betty was nominated for an Oscar for the role, which I'm sure sat real well with Joan Crawford. Ten years after this, the two would share the screen for the first and only time. I didn't want you to be worried about the house. Even if I do have to sell it, we'll still be together. Glad you're not going to sell this house. Daddy bought this house. And he bought it for me. You don't think I remember that, do you? You're wrong, Jane. You've just forgotten I bought this house for the two of us when I signed my first contract. You don't think I remember anything, do you? There are a whole lot of things I remember. And you never paid for this house. Baby Jane Hudson made the money that paid for this house. That's who. You don't know what you're saying. Blanche, you aren't ever going to sell this house. And you aren't ever going to leave it either. 
While both actresses had been steadily working in one manner or another over the decades, not always the first build star, but still working, the two actresses were now in their early 50s in 1961, and they had been through the ringer. Joan was on her fourth husband, Pepsi executive and later CEO Alfred Steele. Betty was recently divorced and had moved back to New York, where she was having a successful second act in the theater. Neither were employed at Warner Brothers, as the studio system had more or less disappeared by this point. It was ultimately Joan who approached Betty with the script for Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. After reading the novel on which it was based, Betty was interested and met with proposed director Robert Aldrich. She had only two questions for him before taking the role. Would she be playing Jane? And was he sleeping with Joan? Once Betty's concerns were addressed, the project was a go. If you've never seen Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, and if you haven't, you need to go watch it again after you listen to this podcast, it takes on another level beyond what's on the screen, knowing everything that went on behind the scenes and just how much they disliked each other. The premise and the situations the actresses are put in in this film could not have been more serendipitous if the filmmakers had tried. Betty played Jane, a former child actress of Shirley Temple-esque fame, whom is eventually eclipsed by her older sister Blanche, played by Joan, whom has success as an adult actress, something that Jane never achieves. Now, both middle-aged and both past their professional primes, Jane has to take care of her older sister, whom is now confined to a wheelchair following a car accident. Tensions flare between the two as Jane regularly mistreats her sister, and with rising bouts of jealousy over a career she never had, Jane eventually holds her sister hostage. I won't ruin the ending if you haven't seen it, but you at least get some idea of how intense this movie was. In the early, early, early days of production, everything seemed to be fine. They were taking pictures together in the director's chairs. They were all smiles and everything was going to be fine. They're going to make a movie. That did not last. In fact, the feud was about to reach its apex. Everything started off innocently enough. Joan's husband was on the board of directors for Pepsi, so Joan had a Pepsi machine installed on set. Betty retaliated by installing a Coke machine in her dressing room. When Joan started sending little gifts and notes to the crew from both of them to win their affection, Betty sent Joan a note telling her to, quote, get off the crap. Both phoned Aldrich nightly to complain about each other. Then things escalated. For the scene where Jane beats Blanche, Joan was concerned that Betty would actually hurt her and asked for a body double. There was one close-up, however, that a double could not be used for. When this was filmed, Betty clipped Joan's head, she screamed, and filming stopped. Quote, I barely touched her, said Betty, unapologetic. Others present claimed that she left Joan in need of stitches. Don't feel too bad for Joan, because the next week she got her revenge. During the scene where Jane drags Blanche out of bed and across the room, Joan, knowing that Betty had chronic back issues, made herself as heavy as possible. Quote, There's a way of making it easy on the actor who was doing the carrying, said director Aldrich later. But Joan wanted Betty to suffer. A Hollywood legend also states that Joan even said that she wore a special lead weightlifter's belt just to make it as difficult as possible. 
Joan also spoiled at least one take by stopping to cough halfway through. When filming the scene was mercifully done, Betty was screaming in agony as Joan moseyed back to her dressing room. Despite all this, and I'm sure dozens of stories lost to time, the film was finished. Not only that, it was pretty good. In 1972, Joan told author Sean Considine that after seeing the film, she urged Betty to go and have a look. When she failed to hear back from her, Joan called her and asked her what she thought of the film. Betty replied, quote, You were so right, Joan. The picture is good, and I was terrific. Joan said, quote, That was it. She never said anything about my performance. Not a word. And apparently that was enough to do the shitty things she did next. Joan pulled out of promoting the film, citing illness. Betty claimed it was because Joan didn't want to share the stage with her. Now, if you listen to the Academy Award podcasts, you might recall me mentioning how nasty Oscar campaigns of the last 20 years or so have been. What we didn't really get a chance to get into was the fact that they were always nasty, but back in those days it was a little bit more discreet. Joan, according to Betty, actively campaigned against Betty getting a nomination or winning an Oscar for Baby Jane. This didn't go her way initially, and Betty was nominated for an Oscar, as was their co-star Victor Bruno. Joan was not nominated. Surely disappointed, but unswayed, Joan now actively campaigned against Betty winning the Oscar. She also had another sleazy plan. Not to call a stranger, even a dead one, a bitch, but what she did next was real bitchy. Joan contacted all other nominees in Betty's category who were unable to attend the ceremony and offered to accept the award on their behalf if they won. One of those actresses was Anne Bancroft, whom was appearing in a play on Broadway at the time and couldn't make it to the Oscars. Joan was going to get on that stage no matter what it took. Betty desperately wanted to be the first actress to win three acting Oscars and was certain that this was her last shot to do so. She was right, as this was her last Oscar nomination. When Anne Bancroft ultimately won for her role as Annie Sullivan in The Miracle Worker over Betty, whom was the favorite, Joan took to the stage to accept the award for her. Once again, Joan had upstaged Betty in a very public manner. Joan then proceeded to pose with Bancroft's Oscar backstage with the other winners of the evening. At the end of the day, while critically kind of panned, Baby Jane was a big financial hit for Warner. It was the 20th highest grossing film of 1962 and was the best showing for Betty and Joan in over a decade. The film would spawn what is known as the psycho Betty genre, which includes Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte, which was supposed to be Betty and Joan's next film. The nominees for Best Performance by an Actress are Anne Bancroft in The Miracle Worker, Betty Davis in Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, Catherine Hepburn in Long Day's Journey into Night, Geraldine Page in Sweet Bird of Youth, and Leo Remick in Days of Wine and Roses. And the winner is Anne Bancroft in The Miracle Worker. Accepting for Anne Bancroft, Miss Joan Crawford. Miss, Miss Bancroft said, here's my little speech, dear Joan. Quote, there are three reasons why I deserve this award. Arthur Penn, Bill Gibson, Fred Cole. Unquote. Thank you. 
no matter how miserable they'd made each other and everyone around them by extension, box office numbers don't lie, and Warner wanted another Betty Davis and Joan Crawford film stat. Initially, the two agreed and signed on to Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte. The film was set to bring the pair back together with their baby Jane director, whom I guess just likes to be miserable. Filming began shortly after the Oscars in 1964, you know, right after Joan upstaged Betty again. But it was Joan who dropped out only a few weeks into filming Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte. According to those on set, Betty, who was still, honestly, understandably, quite a bit pissed about the Oscar situation, was the meanest she'd ever been. Joan's reasoning for exiting the project was illness. Director Aldrich and Betty even hired a private investigator to follow Joan around to catch her in her lie, but was unable to do so as Joan lost her tail in Beverly Hills. Eventually, Olivia de Havilland took over Joan's role. As far as anyone can tell, Betty and Joan never met again. Thirteen years later, Joan Crawford died on May 10th, 1977, of a heart attack in her New York apartment. Later that year, Betty was allegedly quoted saying, quote, You never say bad things about the dead. You should only say good. Joan Crawford is dead. Good. The two hadn't seen each other in 15 years, and clearly no olive branches had ever been accepted. A year and a half after Joan died, her eldest and disowned daughter, Christina, wrote quite a damning book about growing up in the Crawford home called Mommy Dearest, which was eventually turned into a film starring Faye Dunaway. But that, dear listeners, that's a topic for another episode. Twelve years after Joan died in 1989, Betty collapsed at an award show. She had been previously diagnosed with breast cancer in 1983, underwent a mastectomy, but discovered in 89 that the cancer had returned. Betty was on tour at the time, accepting Life Achievement Awards, and recovered enough to hit Spain and France before eventually passing away at an American hospital in France. She was 81 years old. Joan Crawford and Betty Davis are both icons of cinema in their own rights and left behind the bodies of work to prove it. Now, go watch what happened to Baby Jane. I can't undersell it. Just go. that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media where I also post photos for each episode at Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at the Tinsel Factory, or if you have any questions, you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. 
I am an independent podcast, and therefore I'm relying on you, the listeners, to help get my name out there so I can rise up the ranks through the, with the algorithms. So if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. And if you shared it on your social medias, for example, that would help like a whole lot more too. In order to keep making this podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. I've also got a Venmo. If you could help me out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. I've also got merch. Check it out in the link in the show notes. Next week, the feud between Jerry Lewis and Dean Martin that broke apart an iconic partnership. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, that's a wrap.